Blog Talk Radio.
we've been trying to make the institutions of society more democratic. Because we want to make it more democratic, it comes with a real threat to those positions of power. So we've got to understand the strategy that has been utilized in terms of maintaining our domination in, here in, in North America. Now, responses to the U.S. attempt to undermine the autonomy or independence of where people can best be scrutinized by looking at three nations and their response to U.S. imperialism and its plans to subjugate. The three nations are Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and the internal colony in the U.S. known as the Afghan community. First, Afghanistan. Afghanistan was an unfortunate victim of geopolitics, intent on reestablishing dominance over Afghanistan and other third world nations, the U.S. used 9-11 incident justifying the attack against those countries deemed a threat to national interests. Despite the fact not a single Afghan was responsible for 9-11, we know the U.S. and Israel was the real corpus behind 9-11, Afghanistan was attacked one month, exactly one month after 9-11. Timing of the attack on Afghanistan suggests plans were made well in advance before 9-11. Now, this duplicity or deception by U.S. intelligence was documented by Bennett Rubin's book, Afghanistan. It has been documented the Taliban was never a global threat, and a threat to the U.S. even less. Relationships between the Taliban associates and the U.S. were well documented. Abdullah Azim, a mentor to Osama bin Laden, was sanctioned by U.S. to raise funds in the U.S. for the, for the Mujahideen. This relationship persisted to ensure Afghanistan will continue to pursue policies favorable to the U.S. and by extension to the West. This relationship was complicated when Hamid Karzai, President of Afghanistan, alleged the Obama administration is al-Qaeda with obtaining weapons. Karzai, Karzai, an U.S. asset, was placed into the president after bombing raids by the U.S. forced the Taliban from power. The relationship between Karzai and U.S. strained even more when Kazai, 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 uh, pronounce his name incorrectly, forgive me, requested $10 billion a year for U.S. to rebuild Afghanistan. The U.S. reneged on its promises to consider Kazai's request, instead telling him no way. Needless to say, Afghanistan, in this case the Taliban, resolve increased. The government once committed to blocking foreign fighters into Afghanistan turned a blind eye. Kazai and future officials realized they were just pawns, and the future of Afghanistan lies going in a different direction from the U.S. After 19 years of fighting, the Afghans are close to getting their country back. Secondly, Ethiopia. Ethiopia's response to imperialism on counterinsurgency is to facilitate their own enslavement. Upon assuming office as prime minister, Abed Ahmed's first order of business was to remove top politicians from parliament, many of them deteriorate. Next, he sought an alliance with Eritrean district uh, Afwerke. This relationship was suspect because prior to the visit to Eritrea, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for pursuing peace but <clears throat> between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Ironically, his peace plan did not include hostilities between the Tigray community and Ethiopia. In other words, his peace plan was no peace plan at all, and like Ob Obama's Nobel Peace Prize, reveals the nature of political games in support of Western interests. Now, weary of, of communist ideology, many Ethiopians have evolved to understand progress can be achieved many ways. That propping up one political system versus another must be weighed against the conditions and time and strategic, and strategic imperatives. Erecting the largest electro hydroelectric dam in Africa is a noble feat, and it certainly stands to benefit countless millions in Africa. But control of the dam is vital. Originally intended to be self-financed by Ethiopians, 
The project hit a snag when its chief engineer, Bakaley, was assassinated in Addis Ababa. Interestingly enough, Bakaley's death coincided with the appointment of Abid Ahmed as prime minister. It was reported Bakaley's security personnel was removed from prior to his assassination. Being a government employee, the government was aware of the potential threats to Bakaley and the displeasure emanating from Egypt concerning the construction of the dam. Insiders speculated Bakaley's death was strategic not to end the project, but to facilitate more time to secure Western uh, investments. Insider views proved pathetic, prophetic because completion of the dam was awarded to Salini Constructora, an Italian firm. Even though the Ethiopian government kept the design phase of the, of the dam secret, secrecy is no longer assured, as obtaining the specs of the dam has become relatively easy. Ahmed's embrace of giving Italy $4.7 billion for a project that could have been financed internally and completed speaks volumes about his political motivations. Prior to the appointments as, pre- as, 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 appointment as pre- prime minister, the cohesion among his, his 80 ethnic groups in, in uh, Ethiopia was relatively stable. The strongest discontent came from the Oromo community. As the largest tribe in Ethiopia, their grievances were legitimate in that society's institutions should reflect electoral power. The previous administration under Haile Mariam Desagali, a uh, descendant of the Tigray influences, formulated a political balance between internal relationships and foreign investments. Ever mindful of Western attempts to recolonize Africa, all foreign investments were regulated to ensure Ethiopia's wealth would not end up in some Western capital. As such, he found it more advantageous to conduct business with China, given China's willingness to engage in productive business pursuits. Ahmed, on the other hand, prefers to sideline China. Instead, Ahmed sees Western investments as the way for, right, right way forward and has been rapidly prioritizing Ethiopia's assets. Appointed as the interim prime minister for two years after Dasage resigned, he hastily privatized the sugar industry, the phone industry, railroads, and industrial parks and hotels. Currently, he's contemplating privatization of financial services, aviation, and power distribution which would only ensure the fall of Ethiopia's economy in the triumph of imperialism. Ironic, for a country that prevented the colonization of its lands to succumb to the machinations of a president, a CIA asset, recruited in Ohio. Thirdly, the African, Africans in America. Africans live in America and constitute a colony giving constitutional mandates defining who is a legitimate citizen from those who simply reside in a territory. This understanding is important in making sense of the socioeconomic basement Africans find themselves navigating. Maintenance of the master-serf relationship is key to maintaining control of its subjects, and as such, are reflected in the political social institutions, like, like international policies that create the framework for exploitation of third world, the same framework applies nationally. The framework of racial ethnic oppression is achieved methodically, employed a process to, delib- to debilitate within. In the case of Africans in America, religion was used to undermine African self-esteem, followed by social policies that divided Africans by skin color. This social policy morphed into political policy that employed class stratification in the African community. For example, the Philadelphia Plan, originated by former President Nixon, provided opportunity for a relatively small group of Africans. The media coverage of the small group was televised repeatedly, by constant media exposure, the perception was created America had abandoned racism. Access to jobs meant some of the African community would now flee the city and reside in the suburbs, a testament to their hard work and sacrifice. 
Now, strategies of disruption did not end with class stratification. African, African movements would be infiltrated and leaders assassinated. This strategy would be augmented by corporate funding to ensure such movements could be, would be conducted in a manner that is non-threatening to the status quo. In other words, distract the masses from understanding the nature of structural oppression. Um, instead, uh, reinforcing the notion change could only come about uh, or be achieved by working within the system. Never question the benefits to the capitalist class. Financing the public schools was structured to even to ensure minimum revenues were flowing to city schools, thereby depriving city students of technology and the latest books. Separate but equal may have been overturned, but equal access to educational materials were not. A poorly funded schools were compounded by the fact access to nutrition plagued many students. Historically, the situation was addressed by providing indigent students in meal tickets or reduced lunch prices. Such programs have been under attack or eliminated despite the pervasiveness of poverty in the 21st century. In fact, the World Economic Forum has advocated socialized consumption or reducing access to resources, resources for the poor. Implicit in this concept is the notion of global poverty, that is, ever, ever decreasing funding for the poor, is the only response to the gravities of capitalism. Clearly, poverty is here to stay. Advocating greater poverty throughout the world will only facilitate more chaos, more, more needless destruction to, of life. Ironically, if capitalism lives, people must die. Historically, Africans have uh, resisted strategies employed by government geared toward the debilitation, in some cases, death of African people. As U.S. economy deconstructs, the desperation of economic elites grows. We can anticipate more intricate attempts to deceive and eradicate Africans and other progressives like the Plowshare Plow 7 of Kings Bay or Grandmaster Jay, who's currently arrested, who's standing up for justice. We owe it to ourselves to be vigilant and to be intellectually aware of the pitfalls we surely will encounter. Fear simply is not an option. And on that note, Brother Africa, I'll close. Yes, we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. One of the things you failed to mention at the beginning of the program, based on past programs, there may be some periodical disruptions within our program that is far beyond our control. So when you have this moment of silence, please stay, um, be patient and wait a few minutes, and we will get our board back in order. So again, Brother Hackey, again, we thank you. Uh, for your dissertation just now, and we now we will go to Brother Moses, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially Brother Haki as being a panelist. Um, my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't, we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to quickly take a 
Revolutionary Culture Break, and when we come back, we're going to invite you to come and join us by calling in at 323-679-0841, and we can discuss what's going on in your world and community. This is Africa on the Move. Your skin to wear 
you belong. Us by calling 347-838-1111. That's 
323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four number. So, Brother Hockey, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, you know, Brother Africa, this, so, this so-called Payment Protection Program, PPP, was a program initiated to help initially small businesses with things like, you know, uh, salaries, things like rent for the building and mortgage for the building and so forth and so on. Well, apparently this Paycheck Protection Program or PPP program was um, um, exploited uh, by the Trump administration according to the New York Times and the uh, independent news agency. It states the fact that 25 uh, PPP loans were made to the Trump organization or Jared Kushner's companies. Uh, the political, uh, you know, the politics aside, the, the, the immorality in terms of people who, positions of wealth, actually taking advantage of a program geared toward benefiting, you know, the masses of people who have small businesses, fixed violence in terms of kind of callousness, the kind of lack of concern uh, for working people in the society. And we got to be very clear on that, on, that, on that very point. Now, according to this report, the Trump administration received, the, the Trump International Hotel and Tower received $2.4 million from this program. Uh, according to, uh, also according to this report, the tenants in the Jerry Kushner's building, the slumlord, in New York City, uh, four tenants in this building received over two hundred thousand dollars. Even the press secretary, uh, press secretary Kaylee uh, McEnany, family uh, had a roofing fa- a roofing company. Her family, her father received two million dollars from his administration. So clearly, that's clearly there is something fundamentally askew in terms of you know you know how business plays how business gets get, get done in the society. So we can't speak enough about the kind of um, corruption that exists. Uh, in the society, and one of the things when we talk about bringing about real change in society, none of that can be achieved unless, first and foremost, we tackle the corruption that's inherent uh, in American society. Also, the, the report also mentions that you know of the $522 billion for the PPP program, uh, most of it was given to large businesses. Um, ironically, small, medium-sized businesses are the businesses that employ most people. So if you want to make the most and most most effective use of that money, then it should have went to small and medium-sized businesses because they employ most of the people in America. But the mere fact that the giant businesses, giant corporations, got a, a, a lion's share of the money speaks volumes in terms of just not only corruption but the kind of power that they wield in society, in terms of essentially being above the law. Because a lot of these loans that they receive, they weren't qualified for, but nonetheless, they received the loans anyway. Now, the, the, uh, interesting enough, the Small Business Administration, who had these statistics on hand, uh, considered these statistics for a long time. Uh, it, it took, um, it took um, private individuals to sue the Small Business Administration to, for them to release this information. Now, the Small Business Administration initially said that 80% of the loans, or the $522 billion, uh, went to small businesses. That was a lie. The exact opposite was true. 87 of the loans for, of that $522 billion went actually to big businesses. In fact, uh, one of the things, the average uh, loan for big businesses was a hundred and was a hundred. Well, I'm sorry, uh, ten million dollars. And the average for small business came out to about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less. So clearly, this kind of corruption that's embedded in American society, it's, it has to be addressed. But unfortunately, it's so it's it's, it's so you know the corruption is just so uh, ingrained you know in the system. That the reality is that if to, to to remove it at this point in history, it's almost impossible to achieve. And so, given this background, uh, one of the things we can we can we can understand or we can anticipate that if we think for one second that this, the, the material positions of working people or poor people in society is going to change fundamentally, then we're sadly mistaken. 
So clearly this kind of corruption that exists in America, you know, uh, uh, wreaks havoc, you know, not only in terms of the economy, but the, the wreaks havoc in the lives of people, you know, have to live in this country. So and, uh, so clearly, you know, uh, we got our work cut out for us in terms of just trying to navigate this insanity and trying to create some kind of means by which, you know, some semblance of humanity uh, prevails. So clearly we got our work cut out for us, and, you know, the organization, uh, you know, uh, is it's so important in terms of understanding the nature of the beast, what's going on in society, and what we must do in terms of combating this insanity. Well, it sounds to me, Brother Hakeem, you live very well for Ed and Clayton Powell. If I recall correctly, there's a quote um, by him where he states that in politics you take what you want and you fight to try to keep as much of it as you can. I think you're, I think you're right. I think Adam Clayton Powell is absolutely correct. I mean, unfortunately, you know, you know, you know, they got a propaganda machine in place, and so when we see this kind of corruption, we see that business as usual. We see that as natural, and so therefore, there's a real outcry from the mass of the people in society. Certainly, there are some people who 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 resist, who seek to make known this kind of corruption. But the mere fact that there's not enough of an upswell in terms of when this kind of corruption um, exists, uh, it's not enough of a response for the mass of the people in society, which means it only encourages more corruption. So, absolute power is absolutely correct. Okay, let's go there, Brother Moses. Brother Moses, talk to us. What's going on in your world and community? Well, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, the U.S. Uh, of Asia. And certainly I've got to recognize that um, I'm in the middle of this beast. And, um, and um, I... Uh, Look around and see this president is going to give up his his throne and uh, his studs. His studs are all gathering around him, I guess, looking for pardon for for future and unknown crimes. It's a bet. The fact that people can even entertain the idea that he he can somehow pardon himself is is ridiculous in my mind. I, I don't even know I don't even know how anybody could even be thinking in terms of that. But um, um, you know, this, the the struggle is is for state power. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. And, uh, and um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to stay uh, focused and, and keep my eye on the ultimate situation as it develops. And I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Brother Moses. Hey, listen, panelists, before we take our quick station break and when we come back, we're going to uh, discuss the theme tonight. Again, what are we going to do in the context of a video that uh, recently I had a chance to see by Brother um, Dr. Umar Johnson. We raised some really fundamental issues and concerns I think we have to address as a people, and we would like to get your feedback on some of these concerns. But before we go to get you that point, I would like for, for you all to maybe speak to um, this issue of this narrative of developing these vaccines for for this um, coronavirus, and not only developing the vaccine, but we know that normally take years for really to be able to come up with a proper vaccine to deal with any kind of viruses. But one of the phenomena that's going on in the media, I'm just trying to figure out 
what's up with that is that they are talking about disabusing, disabusing vac- vaccine to inject in people, but no agency has given its final approval as it's safe to take. They haven't approved of the vaccine, but yet they are mass producing it and talking about distributing it. What do y'all make of that particular phenomenon, Brother Hackey? Well, I, I think, you know, um, one of the things we talk about fascism, we talk about the power, the power of, of corporations of, of wealth to rule. And in that context, it's all about the dollar bill. And so, therefore, it doesn't really matter in terms of potential implications of that vaccine, you know, once it's injected to people. It's not really concerned. It's more a priority to have access to those dollars. It's unfortunate, but that's just, that's just the way it is. Uh, one of the things also we've got to keep in mind about the Africa, when we talk about the dissemination of the vaccines, keep in mind, they're all in terms of purposes, the Food and Drug Administration have been operating effectively for a long, long time. Aside from defunding the Food and Drug Administration, this whole attempt in terms of undermining the Food and Drug Administration's uh, powers has been uh, codified, you know, through the years. Uh, it didn't start with the Orange Minutes. It started prior to him. So certainly Barack Obama did not in terms of, in terms of uh, we, you know, we empowering, you know, the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, he essentially played ball in terms of allowing, you know, the power be effectively being taken away from the Food and Drug Administration. So the people who are responsible for you actually evaluating the, the effectiveness of these, of these drugs, if they have no power, then clearly uh, businesses are in position to do whatever they want to do with disseminate those drugs. So if they give people those drugs and there's some ill effects, then so what? It doesn't, what does it really matter? Because the bottom line is that the, to, to bring a suit against them is a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Because number one, even if you bring a suit, that you have to have access to certain information. Well, if that information is deemed, you know, um, um, not retrievable, then there's nothing you can do in terms of forming a defense, in terms of trying to present, you know, uh, uh, present, you know, why, you know, drugs, in fact, was a, a hazard to, 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 to people's health. So clearly across the board, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a whole array of problems in terms of this, 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 this vaccine, but we shouldn't be concerned that, you know, that when we talk about fascism, one thing we have to understand is that the business's ability to move government out of the way is, is, is so important in terms of facilitating uh, fascism. So because fascism is here, business do a very good job in terms of sidelining the government. And so therefore, they simply do what they do. So that's the way it is. Would you make a disconnection, Brother Moses? They talking about distributing drugs that has not been properly approved, even if it has. I don't know if we should trust Agencies such as CDC, but you'll make on this phenomenon. Well, let me say. Let me, let me say. Let me say first and foremost. Let me say first and foremost. I'm I'm not a, a, a scientist uh, in the sense of of uh, biological and, and immunizations and. And as viruses, etc. Um, so you know, this pandemic, you know, is, um, is um, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning, uh, and and trusting that. For instance, Dr. Falsey has, has got my got my attention, and um, and uh, and I'm trusting him, and. Uh, I'm trying to use my judgment as best I can, uh, listening to all sides of the story. But uh, 
I, you know, it's it's hard. It's very difficult when you know that we're living in capitalism and they want to make money and and, and, uh, and uh, the, the incentives there, everything's in place and uh, it's, it's hard to trust. It's hard to trust. It's hard. It's very very difficult. But I do know there's a science and there's a disease called COVID-19. It's very real and it's very deadly. From North Carolina, we are the cultural arm of worker and civil rights organization Black Workers for Justice. Um, we came in from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, from Durham, um, and we are here because we support and we are part of the labor movement, but also part of the environmental justice movement, too. We are with UE 150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, local of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. In our communities, we fight on the job, but we also see the need to fight in our communities. There is no distance between the two. If we want justice on our jobs, we have to fight for justice in our communities. A lot of our communities face um, environmental hazards. Uh, some of us come from communities that have super fun sites in the middle of them. Some of us are part of organizations, environmental organizations that fight against coal ash ponds, that fight, that are currently fighting against the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will come through predominantly of colors, communities of color, black and Native American communities. 
Um, so we're fighting against that. We're fighting against hog farms, um, proliferation in North Carolina, and the dumping in our streams from being contaminated from hog farms. So we see the intersections between workers being poisoned on the job and workers being poisoned in our communities. We want to close with a song. So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Little girl don't read so well, there's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of mama heat. Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Clean water, clean water safe for all. That's it. <laughs>
¿Dónde está Maranta? El Amaranta y el Pinky, ¿dónde están? ¿No? La cantera. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moves. We'd like to thank everyone for their patience. As we stated earlier at the beginning of this program, we will be receiving um, technical difficulties that are beyond our control, and we have left our formal complaint. But outside of that, is outside of our control to be able to prevent these uh, interruptions. So again. We're going to do the best we can, and we thank you for your patience. Getting back to our political panel analysts, we're going to discuss a little bit about a recent presentation that was made on 2016 in Memphis, Tennessee, by Dr. Umar Johnson. He's speaking to the issue of racism and white supremacy, and he made some interesting observations and points to issues that we would like to get known as panelists. Um, no response to it, but also yo, so you can do that. I feel free to call in at 323-679-0841. Hit one, and we'll now you last for a number. So, panelists, in this presentation by Brother Dr. Umar Johnson, he talked about the, 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 the transformation of we as being oppressed people in this country from going from being imported slaves to slave manufacturing. What do you all make up that particular particularity of describing that uh, African people are no more being imported as slaves, but they are creating additions that are manufacturing or creating slaves within its, its, its border and its power? Brother Hackey? <coughs> yeah. Well, it, it, all starts with, it all starts with the mindset, Brother Africa. Uh, one of the things they, they wanted to do, and they've been doing since we've been here, since we've been brought here from Africa, to sort of inculcate certain minds, certain values in, our, in us that make us uh, uh, make our actions counterproductive. So, as opposed to empowering ourselves, what happens is that we actually disempower ourselves simply because we're being conditioned to believe certain realities which doesn't objectively exist. But unless we believe those realities, so for that brother or sister who believes in fact that skin color defines your intelligence, in the course you can anticipate on how they act, uh, uh, how they would feel toward other African people. For that, Af- for that African brother or sister whose position is that, you know, uh, that uh, um, slavery is uh, our, our, our oppression is a direct result of our, our ineptitude, our inability to get things done. For individuals who believe that, then certainly you can certainly understand how they will acquiesce to their own oppression. Uh, they will support their own oppression. So we, we understand that. So clearly, you know, when they outlaws, you know, when they outlaw slavery in 1808, I believe, uh, when they outlaw that, then they devise different ways, methods in terms of perpetuating that whole that whole that that whole uh, uh, institution. And certainly, one of the ways they did it was in terms they did it politically. In terms of when you, when you talk about, for instance, uh, you know, uh, people being free, the question is that one of the things we got to keep in mind, and when you talk about labor, uh, labor is very very important. The land means nothing without labor, and so therefore, those capitalists understood that in terms of the the our potential in terms of being laborers was very, very key to them. So what they do, did was politically devise methods to ensure that that labor supply was in constant demand. So when we go from sharecropping, when we go to indebted, uh, in, 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 in servitude, when we go to 
all of these various methodologies they utilized in terms of making sure that uh, you know our labor was uh, could be exploited. That's precisely what they did. And so, therefore, you know, it's so in, in the con- in the context of doing that, they have to keep in mind is that once a people become uh, uh, conditioned to accept these things as a norm, and then it brings a certain kind of hopelessness. It brings a certain kind of uh, a belief that, in fact, that these things are just part of the course. And so, therefore, there's something you can do in terms of resisting. You simply go along with that. And so, I think part and parcel that's been the problem in terms of the slave narrative, in terms of you know our conditions in America. Too many of us are caught up into the conditioning. So we have to, as Bob Marley said, we have to free ourselves from mental slavery because if we don't do that, then we play into this, this slave narrative. And so even though you know we have the opportunity, at least some of us have the opportunity to move to better housing, you know, to better schools and so forth and so on, the bottom line, the system in place that encourages that slave mentality also impacts them as well. So they don't really escape in terms of that narrative. They simply escape the geography. They don't escape the mental mindset. So as a consequence, you have Africans in the, in, the, in the suburbs who are just as confused as Africans in the city in terms of what's, what's happening to us. So we have to understand strategically what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. Because if we don't understand those fundamental dynamics, then it's not possible for us to free ourselves. And so, so, so in other words, so as, as time marches on, they're able to create more slaves. And so therefore we have children. We then in turn teach those same values, those, those, those negative values to our children. We don't do it consciously. We do it unconsciously because we don't understand that what we're doing is, uh, is, is not in our best interest. We do it simply because we program to believe that what we're doing is just and right. So, therefore, we have, to res- we have to resist this mindset which says, you know, we have to think like slaves and act like slaves. But it comes with, first and foremost, understanding the nature of the beast. So people have to fundamentally understand how the system operates, why it operates the way it does. And then once we do that, then we're on our road to begin understanding, you know, how it works, and then to create countermeasures in terms of protecting, particularly our children, from this kind of, from this kind of uh, conditioning. So it's, a, it's a, very, a very intricate and very complex thing, but it's, it, has, it has to be done. Because if we don't, uh, as, as Umar Johnson said, if we don't do that, then the outcome is that we continue to produce more people who are with the slave mentality down the road, which in, in, in essence, we create uh, more slaves. So clearly, we've got our work cut out for us in terms of uh, you know, de- destroying uh, uh, that uh, that mindset that exists in too many of us, brother Moses. What do you make of this whole concept of no longer importing slaves but manufacturing slaves within the border of the U.S.? How can we deal with this whole question of how do you manufacture a slave, from your perspective, brother Moses? Right. Well, we know we know that um, this was. Um, this is the viciousness and the inhumanity and the callousness and the dehumanizing aspect of slavery um, as a business, as, a, as, as, as they said, white power and white supremacy and the white power system uh, was based upon, you know, black labor, uh, defining who, who was a slave, and uh, keeping them in that position is, is whatever by any means necessary, and and ra- rallying everybody uh, uh, to to you know pro- propagate and um, be fruitful and multiply. Um, um, certainly, um, but but it's all within the controls of the of the of the plantation owners, et cetera. As a matter of fact, they were still 
there were still um, um, outlaw um, ships coming into into the South um, with slaves. Um, they they um, that was still going on. It was illegal, but it was still it was still happening. And, uh, but yeah, but yeah, this this prop this propagating uh, the species uh, in in an interest of. Uh, of the slaveocracy, um, that's very real. Um, um, I thought another aspect of the brother, only while we're on the doctor's um, subject, um, in his 2016 speech, uh, uh, he talked about uh, personal relationships. Uh, you know, white people and black people having personal relationships, and how that, um, how that didn't, that didn't. Uh, affect the uh, the fact that that white supremacy was a business and that the uh, obviously the white person could was was could get buy into the business one way or the other um, and uh I thought that was very interesting uh I do know that this thomas jefferson uh, is very real and and uh, and you know he 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 had personal relationships but but he had slaves and uh and that's that's liberalism. That's why I'm out there combat combat liberalism. Father Thomas Jefferson is the father of liberalism. You know they say Virginia is for lovers. Anyway, later on. Thank you. And what we're gonna, what we're going to do with that point, Brother Moses? We can tell you hold on to that point. We will come back to it. But what we're going to do right now? We have with us Brother Pat Adel. He's uh, has just joined us, and we also expected a call from Venezuela for Brother Bamboshi Chungo. Uh, if you're on my line now, please hit one so we can see Brother Bamboshi. Would you please hit one? And for Pat, we're gonna bring Pat in. And what Pat going to do right now when we talk about our theme tonight? Again, what we are going to do? There are some things that's going on in our community that are affecting our people, and definitely something that we need to make some kind of decision on what we're going to do about it. And we're going to bring Brother Patty in there, and we're going to get him to talk about this concept of we are, our community is being poisoned. We are poisoning our community. We're going to get him to come and talk about his research, what's going on to our, in our community as, as it relates to it being poisoned by the U.S. military and other, other factors. So right now we're going to bring Patty in, and we'd like to welcome Brother Pat to Africa on the Move. Welcome. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Brother Lee. And, you know, you've had me on before, and um, I think it's probably been about two years, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm honored, and, um, you know, hopefully um, I can, um, you know, uh, get maybe one soul to work on this, you know. It, it, it it's my, my, my mind has changed on activism nowadays. You know, I, I mean, I could talk to a couple hundred people, you know, on the radio or, um, you know, in forums, and and you know, it doesn't really result in much. So unless somebody gets off the radio and you know uh, writes a letter, or, you know, talks to somebody else or forwards something, heck, nothing gets done. I'm hopeful. Dad is true. That is true, Pat, but also we recognize that wherever there is struggle, there is progress. So we're going to keep struggling until we can change those conditions. Um, what I'm asking you to do right now, real briefly, give a backdrop of who you are 
and talk about this concept of what is going on in our community as it relates to our community being poisoned, particularly as it relates to food and water. You got it, brother. Well, um, I, I have been an anti-war activist uh, for 40 years in Washington, and um, you know that—that's you know I, to, to try to summarize me, I'm like one of those uh, Dorothy Day uh, Catholic worker, although not Catholic, <laughs> um, you know, act, peace activist, like Christian pacifist. So that's that would describe me, and. Um, so, you know, I, I've just been opposed to war and, you know, kind of think that maybe there's other ways to, like, nonviolently solve conflict. And, um, you know, I was at a conference about four years ago, and I was speaking on the J-Rotsi program in high schools. I mean, how they they got, uh, what, 2,200 schools now that have indoor firing ranges. Of course, schools aren't in session, but, you know, there's a lot of lead in the air and, um, so I, I, I um, was at a um, symposium up in Minnesota speaking about, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to be shooting, you know, guns um, in cafeterias, cafeterias where, you know, the lead settles on <laughs> on the tables. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I was at this conference and a lady, uh, Pat Hines, who was EPA's Woman of the Year back in 2009, she was Speaking about PFAS, which, you know, it's like I'd never even heard of it. PFAS is per and polyfluoralkyl substances. And, um, you know, they, they, they are um, they're amazing because you can put them on fire, uh, fire equipment, you know, like fire coats, you know, that the fire people use and, and doesn't catch on fire. Um, it puts fires out better than anything. So if you have a petroleum fire, boom, you use this stuff and it snuffs it, man, in a hurry. And you know it's um, it's it's a uh, it's a bond between fluoride and carbon, and and uh, um, you know it's the strongest bond um, in the world. The problem is um, it's linked to liver and kidney and t- testicular and oh man, a dozen different things that happen to a baby when it's you know developing. As a fetus, and so, you know, it's really deadly stuff. And military used it um, at several hundred bases across the country. Um, Langley, for instance, is one of the worst. Langley in Virginia. And what they would do is is they would train the firefighters in the military to put fires out. So they dig a big old crater of 200 feet across and two three feet deep. They fill it up with um, jet fuel and light one hell of a fire. You know, I can remember as a kid, you know, throwing like, you know, a half a gallon of gas on a bonfire, you know, and seeing a little nuclear <laughs> mushroom cloud. Well, they did that, and uh, and then they would uh, put it out, um, and they would train firefighters how to use this white foam. I mean, it's kind of like shaving cream, and, man, it works. It'll snuff out a fire better than anything. It just kills it. Um, and but all that goes into the environment. It all sinks into the water. It all sinks into the groundwater. It all sinks into the surface water. And all the surface water, depending upon where you are, like where you are probably, heads into the James River. You know where I am, it heads into the Potomac River. Um, and um, 
And so what happens is these chemicals don't break down. They don't break down. They're with us forever. So they can be compared to like the nuclear half-life of radiation, man. Like they don't break down. And um, that means they're going to be around for thousands of years. They get stuck in the sediment, you know, and they're in the water. And they're bioaccumulative, which means that, you know, these fish, I mean, you're, you know, your catfish and your, your perch and, and, you know, your bluegills and your smallmouth bass and, you know, they're all contaminated with this PFAS stuff. And, you know, this is an environment environmental justice deal you know because i mean i think um black folks are affected more so at least where i am in southern maryland and um you know because they're the ones that are fishing i mean you go down to a public pier in my neck of the woods and you see six or eight people and if they're fishing for catfish they're fishing for perch or whatever they're black man and so but they don't know there's no warnings neither the state of maryland nor the state of virginia they know, man. The health departments know. The military knows. The EPA knows. These fish are killing us. You know, these are these are just major contributors to autism, ADD, ADHD. Just look it up, man. Google PFAS, and um, you know um, you'll see a little bit about what I'm talking about here. What do you say there? Let me ask you a reference to your struggle trying to uh, bring this to the attention to the community and to responsible yeah. entities. What has yeah. been the response to when you bring this to their attention? Let's say at least let's say government agencies. How have they responded yeah. to you, or maybe not? What has that history yeah. been like? Well, um, it's not good, you know. Um, you know, the, the, the seafood industry here in Maryland is a multi-billion dollar industry as it is in Virginia. You know, rock fishing, um, you know, on these um, charter boats, it's a big deal, man. I mean, there, it's a multi-multi-million dollar industry, just that. Not to mention crabs. I mean, um, you know, the, the crabs are loaded with this PFAS as well. Um, I tested my crabs, my crab pot out on my dock, and I... It had 6,650 parts per trillion in the crab, which, you know, if we were in Europe, they'd say you're not allowed to eat it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the other thing. Uh, but to get to your question, you know, about, you know, how the authorities reacted, I'll tell you how they reacted. You know, when I, I um, that's funny, you know, I'm, I've been, you know, studying this stuff, getting people to test their waters and test fish across the country. My wife said, well, why don't you... Why don't you test the water here? <laughs> so, you know, um, um, I live right across the creek from um, the Webster Field Annex of the Patuxent River Naval Air Station. And they use this stuff, PFAS, in the hangars and for practice, like lighting fires and putting them out for over 20 years. The creek's only 2,600 feet across. Okay, so... And it is to the southwest of me, which is where the winds come from. So the every day, um, the the foam from the from the navy base gathers on my um, on my beach, and um, so I tested the water in uh, February of this year, and it came back with 1,894 
parts per trillion of 16 different types of PFAS. I mean, you can you can get it. Go to militarypoisons.org. But anyway, it had um, you know nearly 2,000 parts per trillion of PFAS. Well, you know, it's like okay, fine. We don't drink the water, but you know, if you, the oysters and the crabs and the rockfish bring it in. You know, to their bodies. Now, the rockfish I got was um, tested at um, 21,300 parts per trillion. 21,300 parts per trillion. And I guess it doesn't mean anything to you, but just to put it in perspective, the state of New Jersey just passed a new law that says you can't ha- drink water that has more than 13 parts per trillion. And you have the uh, Harvard University's School of Public Health, the Environmental Working Group, and Northeastern University recommending people not intake more than one part per trillion. So we got rockfish in the Chesapeake Bay that contain 21,000 parts per trillion of this stuff, 21,000 times over what these experts are telling us. The stuff is poisoned, and it is the cause of a lot of what ails us. You know, and and um, so that's 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 my shtick, man. I mean, I, I'm out there. Um, when I published the um, information uh, back in uh, March, um, uh, Lee May, who um, is the second in charge at the Maryland Department of the Environment, he's the man who regulates federal installations for their Superfund cleanups in the state of Maryland. Okay, this is the guy in charge of cleaning up uh, the military's contamination, not just PFAS, but everything, you know. Um, And um, so he was quoted in the local press as saying, uh, you know, that he didn't he didn't know what to say about my test results, you know. But he said if the um, the chemicals are in my creek, they could have come from a lot of different places. They could have come from a fire station, let's say, in the community. And, and you know, the local firehouse is six miles away through heavy forest, man. And, and um, you know, I, I might, the, the hangar where they use this stuff is only 2,600 feet away from my beach. So, you know, that is the reaction of the state of Maryland. Okay, that's the first reaction. I mean, finally we got, a, you know, uh, 300 people. Now, this is, this is rough stuff, man. These are conservative folks. All five of our commissioners here in St. Mary's County, if you look at a map of Maryland, St. Mary's is all the way down dippy bottom. I mean, I, I hear Richmond Public Radio. I can't get D.C. Public Radio if you catch my drift, man. We're right across the river uh, from y'all, you know, Northumberland County. Anyway, um, it's, um, you know, when uh, we got 300 people, mostly conservative white Republicans, man. You know, people that work on the base and water people and, you know, people that are local in this community. Uh, not many people of color. I tried, you know, but there's that color thing there, man. And, and um, so, um, you know, unless they, you know, I, 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 I just I think that there's a tremendous amount of work to be done in the black community here and where you are um, telling people, you know, that these people – you know that are supposed to be regulating the food they eat and the water they drink aren't doing their jobs. But anyway, the state um, reacted to 300 people at the local library 
and said, okay, we'll do a pilot program. We'll do a study. And so they did a study, and they tested oysters. And But what they did is um, – now, you got to keep in mind now that the public health officials are saying one part per trillion, you know, in the oysters or anything could hurt you. And so what the state of Maryland did is they didn't report any oysters um, any of the compounds of PFAS, and I think they tested 36 if it was under 1,000 parts per trillion. So what they did is they used parts per billion as their threshold. Man, I don't want to you know, you know, confuse your people, but what I'm saying is, is um, they cheated, you know. And so, but you know, I, I'm, they know me. They they don't like me. So I teamed up with. Um, one of the um, nation's top experts, um, a woman named Leela Markovici, and she is um, <laughs> PhD and, and, and a um, patent attorney <laughs> from New York City, right? And um, you know, I wrote a piece, and then I gave it back to her, and she corrected it for like scientific errors, and we went back and forth, and so we 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 wrote a piece together. You know, um, it's on the Military Poisons website. And it's a critique of the state of Maryland's pilot program for oysters. Bottom line, they're not telling us the truth, man. They're telling us it's okay to eat oysters when it's not. Uh, to our listening audience, we talking to Pat he's, he's fighting the fight as it really relates to environment racism and the road that this particular government and its institutions plan in terms of poisoning our community. The question becomes what we are going to do as it relates to this particular issues and others. If you have any call if you have any comments or questions you'd like to raise as it sit around this issue, please feel free to call in at three two three six seven nine oh eight four one. But right now we are going to our political panelists um, Brother Haki, is there any question or comment you'd like to make as it relates to this impact of these PFAS uh, chemicals and how it's affecting our water supplies and even the foods that we take on a daily basis? Many times when you talk about this high rate of cancer among our people, it comes from behaviors such as the one that we are discussing tonight. Your comment or question, Brother Haki, is to our guest, Brother Pat. Yeah, the uh, environment injustices inflicted upon the African community are numerous. I mean, there are too many to to to, to mention. Uh, but the thing is, this I'm just curious in terms of the um, the standards established by the European Union versus standards established by America. Now, clearly, we understand that the to a large extent, poor people, African people in America are expendable, and so therefore, I do understand that does come into play in terms of considerations when you talk about these very. Uh, um, dangerous kind of chemicals But what do you see as the primary reason In terms of the difference In terms of um, their, their response To such dangerous kind of chemicals Why do they exist in the first place Well I mean the chemicals exist Because they have a lot of utility I mean you know You put them on boots And the boots don't get wet You know and, and you put put it on a fire And the fire goes out And um, you put it on a roof, and the roof just doesn't fade from the sun ever, and it doesn't get wet. I mean, you know, that's that's why we have so many uses. It's, it's Teflon, you know, in the frying pans and and uh, 
Um, but, um, you know, it's um, this is an environmental justice issue. And, um, you know, the in, in our county here in St. Mary's County, uh, we have a, an African-American community um, that is right at the corner of the Patuxent River Naval Air Test Center. And that's where all the chemicals were found. And these chemicals have a tendency to travel long distances of groundwater. And these folks have shallow wells. But the Navy says they have no intention of testing their waters. Meanwhile, you can go up to, I don't know, uh, Bucks County, uh, Pennsylvania, um, and um, you can go to areas up in New York that are predominantly white and middle class, and they're testing the water. You know, and, and so it doesn't take a rocket science to, to to see, you know, what's going on as far as, um, you know, the discrimination is concerned. Um, you know, we know the stuff travels, and um, and so we should be taking care of people. You know, we should be testing waters. But do you think? Yeah. Um, I guess. I guess. Let me ask you this: this the response you know, from the European Union versus response yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, of America. Yeah. yeah, I'm just wondering why do you think there's different different response to the threats imposed by these chemicals uh, versus right. uh, you know why, why do you think it. that exists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got off a little. Um, money, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, money in the political process. Um, for the most part, um, and I've, I've been to um, Europe many times, you know, and I've I've done the speaking circuit and I've spoken to folks in, you know, um, gosh, uh, throughout Germany especially, um, but, you know, in Ireland and in Belgium. And, um, you know, in Germany, um, they don't have um, the ability um, – uh, money, money just doesn't talk as loudly as it does in the um, in the American system. So you know you're really not free to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars as a corporation to influence the votes of people, you know, in the Bundestag, let's say. Um, and so you know you'll have um, members of the Bundestag, um, and, and again, it's a parliamentary system. You know, it's not a two-party system. Both of them kowtowing to corporate interest, and it in in Germany, you know, and and you know, a lot of the parties they're 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 good people, they're trying to solve problems, you know, and um and so you know I'll give you an example, you know, sitting around the you know a bar in in Ramstein, Germany, about I don't know, man, nine or ten years ago, and these guys are in the Bundestag and the European Parliament telling me over a couple of beers that they realized that, you know, they had to close coal down, you know, unthinkable in Germany, uh, and that they had to go, um, you know, with renewable energy. Uh, and, and they set a goal, and, and um, I believe that goal, um, they said we got to do this by 2020. It just seemed wild that 50% of, of their coal would be gone and replaced by renewables. And you know what? They did it, man. I mean, they did it by, what, 2017, 2018. So it's it's a different mindset. It's like, oh, shit, this is hurting people. We need to do something about it. Here, um, you know, DuPont and Dow and, and 3M and the chemical industry, 
um, makes uh, millions and millions of dollars of campaign contributions to Congress. And, you know, the the chair of the United States Senate's, uh, um, you know, committee, John Barrasso, that oversees, um, you know, PFAS usage in, um, in the environment, uh, you know, public works in the environment is the name of the committee, is the, the top recipient of, of campaign cash from the chemical industry. And that's part of the answer, but I'll give you the other part. The other part has to do with the um, of the military not wanting to accept the liability. Well, let me just try to explain that. Um, there is going to be tremendous liability for the military, and I'm talking in the tens and maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm not blowing smoke, man. You know, Orange County, California, one county is looking at a billion dollars in contaminated water. <laughs> and it's caused by the military. A good part of it's caused by the military. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, I think we're in trouble. Uh, but I'll stop and go ahead. Uh, oh, I was, I, was gonna, I was talking about the Barrasso and and in in Congress and uh, um, how um, the Pentagon has tremendous liability and um, and so right now PFAS is not um, uh, considered to be a hazardous chemical if if um, it is designated by the EPA as a hazardous chemical then um, anybody um, that has used it is liable to clean it up. And so, you know, the Pentagon is by far the number one user and has contaminated more soil and groundwater and surface water with it than anyone by a long shot, not just here, but around the world. And so the Pentagon doesn't want to see it uh, categorized as a hazardous chemical. So the EPA does not do so. And then when you get down to the state of Virginia, it's the same deal. The state of Virginia is in no hurry to say, well, we'll set standards. We'll, we'll set standards for sewer sludge. We'll set standards for wastewater. We'll set standards for drinking water. Those are the major things, man. What happens is the stuff um, winds up in, in um, sewer systems. Um, it winds up from factories and from militaries in the septic water, man. It winds up in the wastewater. And it goes through treatment plants. And so it's either turned to the liquid, you know, wastewater, which goes into the river, or, you know, it's turned into sludge, which is put on giant tractor trailer trucks, bred on fields. So we're eating this stuff, man, one way or the other, either through the fish or, you know, through the farms or through the drinking water. And, um, you know, Virginia is not in a hurry to regulate the substance either. Um, but that should answer your question, man. Okay, next Yeah, I, I appreciate you. that. I appreciate that a great deal. <laughs> next to go cool. to Anthony, your question or comment, Brother Anthony. Yes. Uh I um I'm coming in in the middle of this uh discussion, so you may have touched on it already. But uh let's see uh this seems to run deeper than uh just uh groundwater and uh, water contamination because um the wildlife that feeds on on the um on the um 
on on the fish and other forms of life that live in the water, that ends up in the human uh, uh, food chain ultimately through uh, an, uh, animals and plants, uh, you know, absorbing this stuff in their systems, and that being eaten by uh, the wildlife that is a source of our food supply. So can you talk about how that intensified the the concentration of these uh, particular uh, family of chemicals in uh, the human food chain, ultimately? I will do my best. (laughs) Well, um, most people who've heard of PFAS have heard of it in terms of drinking water. Like, you know, this stuff's getting into drinking water. And, you know, you got to be careful because of, of, of the water that you drink. And, you know, I, I've looked into it, I've written about it, and, and I really feel um, that, um, you know, um, we're on our way to solving that problem, okay? Uh, and, and really, if you can imagine uh, for, you know, a relatively, you know, mid-small town, you know, a um, – uh, say a living room full of little tiny like charcoal pellets and you take PFAS contaminated water and you put it through that room and then you spit it out from a four inch PVC pipe into another room like it and you're you're filtering the system you know the water as it goes along we have the technology uh, and it's money it costs money and it's really expensive but it's doable but we have the technology to get the stuff out of the water. And so a lot of, um, of uh, municipal systems throughout the country have pretty much cleaned it up. I mean, uh, not, not to the degree we'd like to see, uh, but, you know, down into the, the um, double digits uh, underneath of 70 parts per trillion, which is what the EPA calls for. So, um, but – you know, drinking water is one thing. It has a solution, man. Contaminating riverbeds and contaminating groundwater, contaminating aquifers. Is, you know, there's rivers underneath our feet, man. And and contaminating surface water. Man, you know, with chemicals that don't break down. This is apocalyptic, man. And, and so, and you know, it's it's darn near impossible to get rid of the stuff. You know, you 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 try to put it through the septic system, and and you know, you can't slather it on fields. You can't pour it into the water. Um, you can't burn it. The stuff doesn't burn. It's it's a it's a firefighting foe, for goodness sakes. So when they do try to incinerate it, the stuff comes back down on our fields and homes. You know, um, intact. So, um, so I guess my point here is that, um, you know, uh, and of course I run the risk of being a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> but hey, man, the EPA and Congress, okay, uh, and um, you know the the military, of course, um, and and state of Virginia um, are all consumed by PFAS in drinking water. Go on all four websites, you know, and and uh, 
and see for yourself. They're talking about drinking water, and yet, and yet, you know, they'll they'll you know some states like Vermont have said, okay, we've got a half a dozen PFAS in drinking water, and it can't none of them can all total uh, more than twenty, and yet Vermont. Um, you know, you got the Air National Guard base um, up there in Burlington, um, and um, you know, you got fish up there with you know many, many times more PFAS, and there's no regulations on the fish. But you watch, you're going to see more results like what I found with the fish and the crabs and the oysters up and down everywhere in this country. And you're going to see lobsters, all kinds of fish. We've we've already gotten um, um, several fish collected um, near military bases with more than a million parts per trillion. I mean, I, I live near Webster Field. It's a teeny little place, you know, for the Navy. They don't they can't even service jets, you know. So it's been small scale here the contamination. But a lot of the bases um, that the Navy has, um, like in Langley. You all have over two million parts per trillion in the groundwater. Man, you can put a dot down in, in Langley and draw a circle 15, 20 miles around all surface water, all fish, all oysters. You know, it's, so which, it's, it's probably too late. So, Pat, what you are sharing with our listening audience is that you can suspect that only more and more of our people can be sick. More and more people going uh, end up uh, making transitions through the through, through the illness of these PFAS in our water and food supply, and yep. if the virus don't get us that will. So what we'd like for well, you to do is, can you just tell our people in terms of how can they get more information on this and how can they contact you if they would like to work with you in this area of fighting well, environmental racism and contaminations in our communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, read, um, you know, my last five or six pieces, um, you know, militarypoisons.org, militarypoisons.org. Just read the last four or five articles, and then, you know, just click on where it says contact. I mean, that's me. Um, I think a, a leading group is the Environmental Working Group, uh, EWG, Environmental Working Group. And, you know, just click on their PFAS page and just start reading. You know, I have not engaged in hyperbole here, you guys. Um, You know, what I'm telling you uh, is to the best of my knowledge and soul, the truth. And yet, you know, if if you want to listen to the tape, it's incredible. You know, and, and but that's what we have. We have a state and federal government and military that are not telling us the truth, jeopardizing you know our uh, our health. One other quick point: um, there's a direct link between um, uh, you know uh, uh, levels of PFAS in people's blood and their diminished immunity to fighting COVID. And I, you know, I'm not a I'm not a scientist, but man, if I had Lots of federal dollars to do some research. I'd, I'd be, I'd be checking out people eating all that catfish. Hey brother, how's the catfish? Hey brother, how's the liver cancer? 
And on that note, we often said to our people, it's important to have information. So as you listen to the information day from Pat Adler, we'd like to encourage our callers to go to their website. Again, this is one of the many, many examples why we must answer the question, what we are going to do as relates to the well-being learn of it. our people in our community. So, brother, we'd like to thank you for your contribution to today's program and the work that you are doing in environmental racism. And we would like to stay in touch with you. And at this point in time, to our listening audience very shortly, we're going to go to a quick session break. And when we come back, we're going to have with our sister Nidal, who will be representing the National Network on Cuba. And we're going to talk a little bit about Cuba. So right now, you're listening to Africa on the Move, and we'll be right back. No, 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 no. Oh. 
U.S. citizens from staying in hotels that are owned by the government. It's it just absolutely incredible the the pettiness and the length to which this administration has gone. As I said, it has been the 60-year policy since the triumph of the revolution of the United States to destroy the Cuban Revolution. Up to now, and I'm sure going forward, that has been unsuccessful. Um, so what's Cuba really like? Um, certainly Cuba is a poor third world country. Um, it, yet it has an incredibly advanced educational, scientific, and health community. I believe that, and, and I don't have the figures in front of me right this minute, but I'm very close to certain that Cuba has had fewer than 150 deaths from COVID. Fewer than 150 in a country of 10 million people. So, you know, comparing that to the United States is, is, just shows you the difference that a society that's dedicated to human needs can, can achieve. So that's uh, uh, the literacy rates are equivalent to those in the United States, if not better. All the health indicators, including um, prenatal and, um, and, and perinatal childbirth, are, are superior to the United States. I mean, pregnancy-related and, and soon-after-birth mortality is, is really a pretty severe problem in the United States, particularly in communities of color and underserved communities. It's not the case in Cuba. Um, so, Lee, to your question, what are we going to do? Well, we're going yes. to continue what we have been doing. We're going to continue through um, programs like yours to try to reach an audience in the United States to get them curious about what Cuba is really like, to help people to travel to Cuba. There are ways to go to Cuba. And, I mean, obviously right now because of the pandemic, because of COVID, um, those opportunities are suspended. But Cuba will be open. It will be open for um, educational, educational tours um, very, very soon. So people going to learn about Cuba, to go going to Cuba respectfully, to be educated, to learn, to have exchanges with the Cuban people and the Cuban institutions, that's the best way to learn about Cuba. Okay, Nyla, what you can do, we have a political panelist waiting. They may have a comment or a question they'd like to ask you. And to our listening audience, Nyla has been to Cuba many, many times, and she knows it very well. So you basically getting information from more of what we would like to think a primary source where we discuss Cuba, not someone who just theoretically read about Cuba, but someone for over years have engaged in the work of trying to uh, lift this racist blockade against Cuba. So right now we go to our panelists. We can start with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, you have any questions or comments for NIDO as it relates to Cuba? Let me say, uh, first of all, I'm I'm um, a supporter of the Cuban Revolution, and I, I've, I've, um, I have the Cuban people are very dear to me, and, and you know the Cuban Five definitely had a big impact on, on my, in my 
career as a professional revolutionary. And um, I think, you know, that uh, that, I, that the work should continue, and I, I wish you nothing but success. Uh, I, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, let's go to Brother Afton. Brother Afton, any question comments for our guest today, Sister Nido? Yes. Uh, I have a question. How has uh, Cuba's approach uh, to uh, handling COVID-19 been different from what we see inside the U.S.? And um, I understand we understand that uh, that Cuba is a poor country, does not uh, does not have the same level of resources relative to its population. But how has it been that it's been able to uh, minimize uh, the impact of the of the pandemic in a way so that? Uh, the loss of life is about 150 uh, people compared to its population of over 10 million people. And is that merely, and is that primarily due to the fact that it emphasizes uh, hum, uh, human life over the preservation of uh, material resources? Could you uh, talk about that a bit more, please? Yes, certainly. Um, Yes, absolutely. It's because Cuba prioritizes the well-being of its society, of its citizenry. So the Cuban approach to um, COVID-19 is entirely different from that of the United States. First of all, the doctor-to-population ratio is well above what we have in the United States. Um, They have a um, family doctor program where physicians and medical personnel live in the community with the residents. They are available to the residents. They have a, of the community residents, they have um, a very advanced testing program um, and, and it's not as though people are forced to go to work when they're not feeling well. Um, in addition to that, Cuba, due to its medical scientific advances, has um, very effective treatments for COVID, treatments that could well be utilized in the United States if we had a system that encouraged cooperation among nations rather than competition. So the Cuban scientific, medical scientific um, research has developed um, very advanced and effective treatment. Um, And they, including, I believe, a vaccine um, that is um, in in the latter stages. But the treatments and the effectiveness of the treatments are beyond dispute. One other thing that that I haven't that I neglected to mention about the Cuban medical system is Cuba's medical internationalism. And what that what I mean by that is that Cuba has groups of 
highly trained medical personnel, you know, doctors, support staff, nurses, technicians, who travel all over the globe wherever they're invited and um, offer treatment and, and care. So during this COVID crisis, they've been, they have medical brigades were, that have worked in over 37 countries, including many first world countries such as, as Italy. And, and the, one of the first countries that they went was to treat COVID patients was Italy. And as you may recall, that in the early stages of the COVID outbreak, Italy was severely impacted. They invited Cuba. Cuba sent its medical personnel, all of whom go willingly and, and proudly as their debt to humanity. And it's something that we don't see in the United States. Um, and to the extent that, and, and the medical personnel who travel internationally, and, and it's not just in COVID, they also um, have been treating Zika and Ebola and, you know, and other really very, very grave um, illnesses and, and pandemics. These are members of what is known as the Henry Reeve Brigade, and that brigade has been nominated for the well, there's a, it hasn't, they haven't been nominated yet, but there is a campaign to nominate them for the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize. And there are hundreds of academics and scholars and intellectuals and professors and medical um, experts who have um, signed the uh, petitions to nominate them. So that's a little bit about what the, um, the medical personnel are like. So it's, it's a multifaceted approach. One, they, they have excellent research. They're developing treatments and have developed treatments that are very effective. But moreover, they are able to um, isolate and, and kind of keep it from spreading. Obviously, everybody wears masks. There are those kinds of approaches that, that work. They work. And people recognize that that's part of what society does, is that it looks out for, for each other. It, the people living in a civilized society abide by certain rules that, that benefit the society as a whole. And there's, this is abundantly clear in Cuba, more so than, uh, than in any other nation with which I'm familiar Okay, let's go to Brother Hackey. But before we go to Brother Hackey, for those who may have not heard my announcement earlier during the program, we ask you for your patience. If you can get a delay between our response or my lack of response, it due to some technical difficulties that we are having that is beyond our control, and we don't believe necessary uh, is, is we don't believe that's not intentional. But these are some of the difficulties you have when you continue to travel down the road of justice for all mankind. So right now, let's continue our discussion. Brother Hackey, any question or comment for Sister Nigel? Yeah, let me let me just ask the sister. I want you to uh, make it plain for me. Now, this small country of 10 million people, what is the definitive threat to U.S.? I mean, clearly, you know, Cuba doesn't have any hostility to America. In fact, most Cuban people tend to 
respect American American people. So really, what is it that America fears when it comes to Cuba? I think it's the fear of a good example. That Cuba it, it shows what can be achieved when human needs are prioritized over corporate interests. Cuba is no threat to any country, it, and certainly not the United States. And you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the Cuban people have no hostility towards the citizens of the United States. They have no hostility towards the U.S. government. They certainly are angry with U.S. policy, but it's not hostile. Um, the, you know, what, is, what does Cuba have? Cuba doesn't have any kind of, of advanced weaponry or technology that is in any way a threat to the United States. But then again, most many of the countries that the United States has singled out for um, its retribution, for lack of a better word, have are no threat at all to the United States. You know, there are small countries trying to to walk their own path. And that's what Cuba is. Cuba, Cuba is is not a threat, other than, as I said, the threat of a different way of life. And I dare say that anyone who goes to Cuba comes back changed and comes back realizing that everything that we have been taught about Cuba is totally wrong. I mean, we know so little about Cuba, generally speaking, and most of what we know is, think we know is, is incorrect. You know, people from the U.S. don't know about the, the educational level of Cuba. They don't know about the health services. They don't know that the life expectancy is greater than in the United States. They don't know that there is no homelessness in Cuba. They don't know that there are elections in Cuba. There but, 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 but is everything Nigel, that we Nigel, know is turned upside down. Can I stop you for a second? The people yes. do know over here that Cuba has no democracy. The people can't think for themselves. Cuba is very repressive. So how are you going to respond to that characterization of Cuba from your experiences of living and working in Cuba? Well, I don't know that everyone does know that Cuba is a democracy. They claim it's a dictatorship. They claim that there are no elections. Oh, you know, well over 90% of the people in Cuba vote, and they vote voluntarily, and they vote by secret ballot, and nobody forces them to vote. And I've been there when there have been elections. I've seen, you know, the ballot boxes which are, um, you know, being watched by young people. And I've talked to people, and I've actually talked to people in Cuba who don't vote. And, uh, and you know, I said, well, did you vote? No, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't believe in voting. And I said, do you get any kind of, you know, pressure or trouble or, you know, what happens? I said, no, nobody bothers us. So people participate, they participate in, at the community level, they participate and at the provincial level, they participate at the national level because it's their civic responsibility. Well, you know, one of the battles 
between the U.S. Cuba is a battle of ideas, a battle of having the right to find yourself, and Cuba takes no back seat of, of, to the world when it comes to finding the essence of who they are and what they want. And they said they will defend their socialist revolution. To them, socialism is a just, an equitable, and fair system, and it's a desirable method in which a society can control where society can organize itself. What it, what kind of experiences did you um, engage in around this whole question when you're in Cuba? What kind of vibe did you get from the people in terms of their social interaction with each other? Did you feel like you was in a society that was very oppressive? You know, how did this, this dim condition of the Cuba called socialism felt to you as a human being coming from America and going there? You know, I really found um, an incredible degree of of mutual caring. You know, there's no comp- there's not competition among neighbors about who has more. And you know, if somebody needs something and somebody else has it, they share it. You know, they they are totally open. Their doors are open. They people invite each other into their homes. It's just it's just a societal um, fact that it, and that's totally different from the United States. You know the culture is is different. The uh, you know the way people interact is different. Um, and and people really do they look out for each other. They look out for each other's um, family members. And as I said, they they share what they have. And and I mean the tr- the other factor is that there are people mostly um, who have family and relatives in the United States who are materially better off. Nonetheless, they don't hoard what they have. You know, they they when someone is in need, they share. Okay, now in closing, can you just speak to the people again? Why should we be concerned about Cuba and what we can do and how do we get in touch with the NNOC for those who may want to join the organization? Um, well, certainly what we what we can and should do is demand an end to the to the blockade. The other thing that and you know, contact your elected representatives and demand that they um change US policy toward Cuba. The United Nations every year votes almost unanimously condemning the United States. Be aware of that vote. Point that out to your elected officials. Um, if you would like more information, you can um, go to our website, nnoc.info. Um, check that out. Um, you can, um, you know, and and to there and in that we also announce trips to Cuba. We anticipate that by May Day of this year there will be an opportunity to travel again, and, and the delegations will be going to Cuba, um, you know, with the idea of learning about the Cuban reality firsthand from Cubans. And on that note, we'd like to thank you for giving us an update on Cuba and to our listening audience who has interest in going to Cuba. Yes, please check out the NNOC website. There are a host of organizations that make up this um, network that take delegations to Cuba. Please check it out. 
And if you want more information as well, you can feel free to contact us, and we we'll keep you informed. You can email AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. So, Nadu, we'd like to thank you for taking your time out for sharing with us up there on Cuba and sharing your perspective on the realities of Cuba based upon what you have experienced. So let's stay in touch, continue to do the good work that you're doing, and we thank you for your contribution to today's program. Thank you for thank you again for uh, for having us, and thank you again for all the work that you do and your t- and your listeners. You are lucky because you're learning a lot from this program. Okay, good night, Brother Lee. All right, good night, Nyla. And to our listening audience, we're going to pause for this cause. When we come back, we're going to pick back up where we begin at the beginning, where we're going to be talking about some issues that were raised by Dr. Umar Johnson in a in a, in a presentation that he did in Memphis in 2016 as it relates to white supremacy, this whole question of racism, and how do we move forward. Our theme tonight is, again, what are we going to do? You have issues dealing with Cuba, issues dealing with environmental uh, racism, and you have heard issues of dealing with African people in general. The question is, we want you to address, again, what are we going to do? We'll be right back and listen to Africa on the Moon. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care For soon we'll be there While our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey Yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. 
and each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. And made it through my journey, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice, 
That's what we've got to do, cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We will continue the discussion as we speak to the theme tonight. Again, what are we going to do? Well, in context of a speech that was given in 2016 in Memphis, Tennessee, to an African um, community um, by Brother Dr. Umar Johnson, he raised some particular perspectives or critical issues I think must be not only discussed within our community, but we got to come to some kind of resolution. Well, not only how we're going to view and articulate our issues, but how we're going to solve them. Brother Moses, we left all you were talking about earlier, his position on, I guess, uh, racist uh, intermingling with each other. Will you complete that thought? Um, Brother yeah, Moses. Um, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hello? Okay. Yes, we can. Yeah, we can hear um, you. I think, I think uh, you know, this concept of liberalism, uh, this basically is a hypocritical, ultimately, um, I don't know that people intend, have a vicious intent in their heart, but um, the concept of liberalism was, uh, father, I said Thomas Jefferson was the father of liberalism. You know, he had a, a, um, a slave, um, I don't know what you would call a concubine or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But anyway, he had, he had a relationship. It was a personal relationship. But in terms of this white supremacy and, and the slaveocracy, he had plenty of slaves and uh, he had no problems um, um, saying that black men were suited for slavery and stuff. Somehow we weren't loyal enough to black women. And uh, I thought that was very interesting, uh, considering how we got here and everything. Um, but like, um, I, I think you know, race, race, to be radical is to be at the root, and that's what we need. Some, we need some radical people. Uh, uh, um, uh, right now, there's a united front of democratic, socialists, and communists, and so liberals are democratic. Liberals, basically, the Democratic, and um, and so you know, it's better than being uh, fascist. So I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Yeah, I think Moses maybe try to get a listen to audience who may have not had a chance to hear that presentation, which they can do that if they go to YouTube and just type in Dr. Umar Johnson, Minnesota, Tennessee, 2016. He was talking about the issue of social relations and social integrations. And he made a statement that he said during slavery time, the African women, the African women were good enough for you, were good enough for you during that time. He was talking to the African men, so therefore she should be good enough for you today. He raised the issue of why there's a lot, seem to be a large um, 
gravitation of African men now wanting to integrate and mingle with uh, European women. And that was, you know, a position that that he has taken that, you know, he didn't understand that because he he understood that when you're really talking about the impact of white supremacy, you know, you got to look at it also not only just, you can't take it so much as a personal personal relationship, but also it's, it has a business component to it. For example, he gave a real interesting example in terms of that particular um, aspect of doing that discussion where he mentioned that there was a friend of his, a young lady, African woman, who told him that she had a European friend, female, who they grew up together, they ended together, they were best of friends. They were working on the same job. And while she was on the job, she went back to school to get her master's degree, Ph.D. in this particular field that would qualify her to be an administrator. Well, a job opening came up, and her European friend found out about the job opening but never shared it with her, but she, but she did share it with another European lady who she didn't know at all. And the European lady ended up getting the job, and the sister who was a friend to this European lady who gave the information to the, to this other European lady that she didn't know, um, the sister asked her why she didn't share the information with her, knowing that she qualified for the job. And she didn't understand. He was saying she couldn't make the distinction between personal friendship versus business friendship. And he was saying because of the impact of this uh, of racism that, you know, Europeans in general would think and act European first. And this is one thing people have to realize. So that was the point you're making. But I thought that was something that um uh, a point of interest, um, in terms of looking at how social relationships um manifest itself among us as okay. to outside of biological makeup. Yes, Brother Moses. Yeah, I think uh, before you move on that well people talking about how the the denial of, of wealth to, to African people uh, was the, the bottom line. I mean, it was to keep money out of our hands and to keep wealth out of our hands, and that was the, the motivation, and that's, that's what the white power structure, uh, everybody has unity around. Yes, and to my panelists, Anthony Haiki, I would like to draw a response to that statement. He took the position that the reason why African people are still oppressed and have a move no, no, no farther than what we have is because systematically, because of when you speak to uh, oppression, to speak to white supremacy, they understand to control with people, you make sure they don't have access to wealth in the capitalist system. Y'all respond to that statement. Brother Anthony, Brother Haki. Who you want? Who you want to go first, brother Anthony or me? You can go ahead. You got the mic. All right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, there's there's no question about it. If 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 you control the wealth, you certainly control to a large extent uh, people's access to um, to two things. I think one of the things we think about Citizen United, this whole notion in terms of you know power defined speech. Clearly, and uh, people who don't have access to money uh, effectively have no speech. And so you can look at it historically, and you could say that when you when you talk about in terms of um, 
you know, the, the particular oppression of African people, all geared toward, you know, ensuring that we don't accumulate a wealth base, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of policy that, uh, that, that, that not only exists in the United States, but exists worldwide with respect to, you know, uh, uh, third world nations. And so, therefore, clearly wealth does play a part, but wealth doesn't play the total part. So this is what I think we have to get at, Brother Africa. You know, you know, you can take, like, Cuba's a perfect example. You can take a minimum amount of wealth and do the things you have to do. What it takes is initiative and understanding. That's what we're lacking. See, the wealth part, I think, can come because there's, there are many ways in which we can facilitate wealth or, or go about the creating wealth. I mean, wealth can be attained. We don't necessarily have to rely solely in America in terms of creation of wealth. There are other avenues in which we can proceed in terms of trying to, you know, uh, create wealth. So I think what we're lacking fundamentally is this, this, this drive, this fundamental understanding in terms of how the system operates. Because we don't understand how it operates, we spend an enormous amount of time trying to accumulate wealth, thinking that somehow if we accumulate wealth, then everything is fine. But what we don't understand is that the same token that we're trying to accumulate this wealth, there are people also systematically across the board who are working to make sure you don't create the wealth. For example... You look at you look at your your your, your you look at your entertainers and your athletes, and you say, well, listen, these these individuals have access to lots and lots of money. Well, with all the access to all that money, then why aren't things fundamentally changing for the African community? Well, partly because one of the things is that those people who have access to the wealth understand that if they were to use that wealth in terms of the empowerment of the community, they understand there's a real probability that they're going to lose that wealth because the people who gave it to them in the first place will simply take it back. And so, therefore, therefore, it, it serves as an impediment in terms of these people actually trying to empower the community. But if the people have an understanding in terms of history, have an understanding in terms of the, 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 the importance in terms of autonomy and the importance in terms of self-determination, if they understood that, then they would be willing to take that sacrifice because the wealth they do have access to, if used correctly, can not only sustain them in terms of their terms of lifestyle, but also contribute greatly in terms of the overall needs that we need in the African community in terms of bringing about real change. So I don't think we want to get stuck too much on this question in terms of wealth, because if we do that, then we're saying that they have total control over us, and they don't have total control over us. So to the extent that they have control over us, we give it to them. So the moment that we understand the reality in terms of the situation we're confronted with and understand the strategies in terms of trying to overcome the, uh, that predicament, then we're in a much more strategic position in terms of creating the kind of wealth that we need in terms of moving forward. But at first, it has to start with an understanding in terms of what's going on. I think it was fundamentally lacking, not so much the wealth. Yeah, would they like to add to that, Brother Anthony? I think we have some difficulty with, on Brother Anthony's line. What we're doing, we continue to move forward. And maybe um, we can screen it out. But also, in his presentation, he raised some other interesting points, panelists, I'd like to get your response on. And I think one of the things we are often raised, and I think it continues to be raised among our people, is this question of our perception of our condition. And I don't think it's a harsh word to use. And we said earlier, we're coming to reform. One of the things we must realize that um, the African people, the system is that well, we're African people. And do y'all think that statement is is too much out of out of the line to to phrase it in that context? Yeah, well, earlier, brother Africa, you know, when we opened up, I talked about in terms of um, counterinsurgency strategies, and it's all geared toward uh, you know the utilization of both military and civilian sources 
to disempower, to make sure people don't become gain any power. So clearly, when you look in terms of the situation confronting the African people, I mean, clearly there's, there's concerted effort, not just by single institutions, as Chuck D would say, but a nation of millions in terms of working together to ensure disempowerment of African people. And so, therefore, in that context, you can only see it as war. The problem is, I think, with our people is that because of this, this, this church mindset, I think there's a tendency to see that, uh, you know, that don't understand, you know, simply because you live here uh, doesn't mean that you're a bona fide citizen. And as such, when they implement these kind of strategies to undermine your progress, they understand it's an act of war. And that's precisely what it is. In order for capitalism to maintain its hegemony, in order for it to maintain its dominance, it has, it has to control. It has to neutralize. It has to undermine. It has to do that. It has no choice. One of the things you talk about the struggle of African people, African people have always been in the forefront in terms of bringing about meaningful change in the society. And as such, African people have always been viewed by the status quo as, quote, unquote, the enemy. Simply because we're talking about basic human dignity that we keep on espousing, and what they see is a fundamental threat to capitalism. So once you start talking about human decency and talking about restructuring institutions, then essentially what you're saying is that you're disempowering capitalists, and they're not going to allow that to happen. And so, therefore, they have to implement this war against you. We just don't understand it's a war. And like I say, this war doesn't just, it's not just African people in the United States, but African people throughout the, about throughout the diaspora. And so when you look at Africa, so when you look at Africa, you look at these African leaders who participate, who acquiesce in their own oppression, who do all the things for the Western nations, thinking that somehow it's to their benefit, they undermine the, the, the common cause for the common interests of all African people, not just on the continent, but throughout the, throughout the diaspora. So clearly, you know, it's important that our people begin to understand that we are at war. African people are at war. And this is why it's so critical when we talk about pan-Africanism in, in terms of why it's important to have a unified and socialized Africa. Because once they're unified and socialized, then they understand objectively that they're at war. And so therefore, your resources, in terms of how you use the resources, how you use the resources to get disseminated, uh, has a strategic importance. And this is important that we understand this. And unfortunately, you know, until we get to that point where we begin to understand that we're at war, they will continue to suffer, suffer, suffer the, 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 the swings and arrows of, you know, of a system which is across the board intent on the, the destruction of African people. So clearly, you know, uh, the frame of anything other than war, I, would think, I think, would be disingenuous. Brother Moses, Brother Anthony, your response to this statement? Yes. Um, could you repeat that statement, please? Sure. The statement, the statement is uh, the issue is African people are at war. The system is at war with African people. In other words, we are at war, and we must understand that. In terms of the premise, do you agree with the premise, or you think that's too harsh to characterize the predicament that we find ourselves in? Uh, we are at war and have been uh, for uh, uh, for years. It's just that. Um, you know, uh, imperialism is is trying to intensify its control of Africa's resources and African people. The biggest way that this manifests itself is in a form of neocolonialism, and that is uh, where uh, a situation where our community is controlled by by puppets of the uh, bourgeois ruling class. And uh, so, uh, and uh, they they control us through control of the way we think and control over our resources, and we are indeed at war, but it's a war that manifests itself in many forms. Uh, 
including physical, psychological, uh, spiritual uh, uh, warfare. And to be specific, he stated there's a war against the African family, just for the record. Right. Okay. Okay, panelists. He said something that was really interesting about the rule of the church. I never thought about it from a perspective, but I'd like to hear y'all. He said the African church is responsible for gentrification within the African community. And he gave an example in terms of the behavior of the church. He qualified that statement by giving an example that when you find churches taking like 40, 50, 60, $100,000 loans, and they do nothing to create income from that. And when they even take the loans out and put their money in white banks, these banks and these bankers make money off of your money just by interest alone. And even with the interest alone, they take their money come back to your community, buy up your community and kick you out. And we are still left with nothing. We are putting the burden on the individual, the poor African people in the church to pay back their loan instead of investing in entities that will generate income when we empower our people. So he see that as the form of allowing this whole process of gentrification to take place. Y'all respond to that particular analysis. Yeah, well, well I think churches, there's, different, there's, different churches, there's different churches and um, the um, there's some churches, you know, that are buying up apartment buildings or building building apartment buildings um, and uh, trying to get some affordable housing going. There's churches, um, you know, donating to uh, scholarship funds for for HB and uh, there's, you know, so there's different churches doing different things. I don't doubt that, you know, the phenomenon he's talking about occurs, but uh, um, I don't, I don't think, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how big the issue that he is. Uh, uh, most of these churches, you know, the average church is probably small. I mean, but I mean, the, but these, these mega churches that. Uh, uh, and then the church has just been around for so long, and they're, they're dedicated to the people. And um, so I don't know, you know, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Hi, Yeah, I, I, I think that the reality is that most pastors are not political strategists. They don't even think in those terms. And when you think about salvation and you talk about a very individualistic concept, and so for them, the more, accumul- the more they accumulate wealth, then the closer they are to the creator. And so therefore, in their mind, they're doing something good. So it's clearly a problem. I mean, but at those, but it's clear there are those pastors who are liberation of theologists who look around the community and see the problems affiliated uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, poverty and who seek, who seek to address those issues by informing the congregations in terms of the systemic problems uh, that are confronted African peoples. Uh, but those those pastors who are liberation theologists are few and far between. Most are not. And so, therefore, realistically speaking, to, to expect uh, these preachers to actually engage in, 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 in programs which is fundamentally, you know, uh, 
buy large, you know, large, uh, uh, large blocks of property for the sole purpose of making sure that you stem uh, gentrification is probably a bit much. Uh, it would be ideal if they would do that, but this just doesn't happen. Then superimposed upon that, Brother Africa, is you got a situation where you got people in the church themselves who are not political strategists. Most of them don't even they don't even think in terms of those terms. Uh, they also caught up into this whole individualistic nature, uh, uh, notion of salvation being a very individual thing. And so, therefore, as long as they benefit personally, or at least the perception is that they benefit, then everything is fine. Their, their relationship with the Creator is is, is, is is solidified, then everything is okay. And so, until you diffuse that kind of thinking in terms of you know what salvation really entails historically. Uh, then they're going to continue to do that which is in their individual best interest and not necessarily in the interest of the group. And so this is the problem that we're confronted with, Brother Africa. So I'm not surprised that they would do nothing in terms of stemming the takeover of these communities. But by large, because one of the things is that if they were to interject themselves into the political process, then for them to do that, they would have to conclude that, uh, you know, uh, maybe – uh, in, in order to bring about results, uh, the creator deems you, uh, you deem you with the ability to actually think, and maybe you have to use that ability to actually think. I think for a lot of preachers, that's a very difficult concept to even think about this concept in terms of human beings being able to actually bring about change, and more, uh, more the belief that the only change can come about is when the creator deems it so. So I think it would be a very difficult thing for a lot of pastors who are conditioned to think like that, uh, to actually uh, to 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 self empower or to do those kind of things as a benefit of the other community, so it's a very difficult situation to overcome, Brother Africa. Brother Africa, your response. Uh, that is uh, that 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 is true. Uh, uh, you know we you, you know uh, we we have to. Um, you know, intensify our level of political education and get better organized as a people in order in order to counter uh, uh, to counter the effect uh, that uh, that this form that that this uh, sort of thinking has on our people, and uh, we have to think, uh, you know, along the lines of. Um, you know of um you know uh economic justice uh, you know for our people and uh struggle to build those organizations that will bring that about and the last question the issue you raised for tonight and I just would like to get you to respond to something to think about and I think the decision that we need to grapple with as a collective not as individuals. When you were speaking to the issue that um, the system does allow you access to wealth, this is how you control your people. But they gave you access to colleges, but not wealth. Colleges is putting us in debt. He looked at how they have gave us avenues to go to school, and in the process of doing it, they have used that tool to indebt us. You know, we know that many, many, if not most, um, students who go to school today, they come out with large sums of debt, and there's very little job creation within our community among us. And the contradiction part to all of that is that he raised that we go into subject areas that has no relevant to the well-being, the interest, and development of the African community. So what do you all make of that analysis? 
should be at this point in time, if he choose to make a decision to go to school, it must be a collective decision where the parents must weigh in and dictate what's in the best interest of our kids and stop going to school, taking these courses that have no relevance to the well-being to our people as a nation, as a group, as a movement. Who you want to answer, Africa? It's open, all three, open. Well, you you need to, open. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead, Brother Haki. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought someone else was about to respond. Okay, yeah. Well, Brother Africa, I mean, theoretically, that's fine. I mean, clearly, uh, we should we should be entering those professions, those professions which are uh, uh, conducive to, uh, to ensuring our longevity into the future. There's no question about that. But the problem is this. You know, uh, there's a certain amount of self-acquisition, a certain amount of um, experience uh, that has to exist. In terms of coming to the realization, you know that uh, you know certain disciplines you must achieve at the expense of other disciplines. In other words, you know one of the things is that you know uh, you know uh, you know as a first generation as a first generation into college, uh, the reality is that the 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 you know statistically the odds of someone in the first generation going to college majoring in let's say uh, physics is probably not realistic. It's only it's only by virtue of in terms of a, 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 a continuous pattern of people in the community, you know, uh, pursuing those kind of pursuits. Do people engage a, a or children in particular engage a interest in those kind of pursuits? And so, therefore, unless we're willing to create conditions in the African community, which we we stress the mathematics, uh, we stress science at a very early age, and when we institutionalize that, then it's not likely that you know uh, individual families per se. Given their situation, particularly with the first generation, are they going to come to the realization that I'm going to major in physics because this is what the interests of my people, and so therefore I'm going to major in physics? It simply doesn't work that way, and so this is the problem. So we have to have the institution to 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 to, to bring into to, to to bring into the consciousness among our people that these the kind of things are preferable. But it takes institution first and foremost. It takes our people understanding the adults particularly understanding that these things are needed, but they have to work together in order to bring it into existence. So things, anything that's going to create children's uh, ability to think abstractly, then those are the kind of pursuits that we have to institutionalize. But we have to have those kind of discussions about understanding precisely what we're doing. The problem is that a lot of people don't, you know, don't necessarily understand, you know, that uh, that that is a priority. In other words, they say, well, my decision as as a head of the household is my decision, you know, uh, you know, to bring up my child the way I see fit, and so therefore, case closed. And so, therefore, such a person is not likely to engage in discussion around. Well, maybe let's just try to let's try to create a condition where these kids grow up thinking that listen, the math and science is important, and this is what they want to pursue. It takes institutions to do that. Now, do we have to collect the will? Probably not. And so, this is a fundamental problem that we're going to find a will. It's not like someone who's you know fourth, fifth generation into the university, where you know where you know by virtue of uh, you know trial and error, they come to the realization that certain kind of disciplines. Are simply not only um, uh, 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 bringing in lots of money, but certain dif- dif- disciplines have already been tried by other family members, and so therefore the option to proceed to something differently becomes more uh, tantalizing for those for that individual. It's a different ball game for people, you know, who are first generation or people, you know, uh, who are who are, you know, who never been to the university before. So it's a, it's a very difficult thing that he asked. It sounds theoretically it sounds good, 
But as a psychologist, surely he got to understand, you know, it's not that cut and dry in terms of doing that. The only way that can be achieved, you have to have institutions to internalize, you know, that, that, that kind of mindset, that kind of way of seeing the world. We ha- we're not there yet. We're still struggling like the, the brother uh, with the uh, environmental issues. We're still struggling getting our people to understand just basic kinds of stuff that's going on. So when we talk about more extract kinds of stuff like, you know, physics and, and chemistry and all that kind of thing, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, unless we create the conditions in the community, the children is probably not an option for most of our children. And this is what the system understands. This is the reason why the, the, the poverty in the community, this is why the poor access to good food in, in the community, uh, the poor housing, this is all part of the strategy because they know in order for you to self-actualize or to come to the existence in terms of doing big and better things, you have to first and foremost uh, have those conditions around you to sort of, sort of uh, com- uh, uh, compel you to understand that thinking big and better is, is, is the best, is the way to go. But it's a process, Brother Africa. So the problem is that unless we can create institutions, I mean, it's, it's just rhetoric. It's just rhetorical, I and mean, that's fine. But I don't see that happening unless we create institutions in terms of making it a reality. Anyone like to add more to that point, Anthony, Moses? Well, well I, I think, you know, like um, on the subject of, you know, school and, and education and um, professions and careers and jobs, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's a very difficult question to answer um, um, for, for someone else. I mean, to basically tell somebody that, you know, you're going to do it my way or, or, you know, because I'm your parent. Um, I mean, there has to be some kind of give and take to, to, to um, make sure that the child is is growing and developing and being being nurtured and uh, and uh, not stifled. And so, I mean, so these are easier said, it's easier to say, say or talk about it than it is to actually live through it. And, and bring up a child. Um, I, I don't have direct experience, but I, I know from, from from my relative uh, experience of being around children and, and having them raised children. And, uh, but I, I I just know for me when I I, I went to school because I I was told basically you know like you you had to have a uh, a, a college degree in, in the, to make it in the world. Uh, this was like back in the. I'm, I'm coming up. I was born in 1951, and so you know, um, uh, the world population has increased a lot since then. And so the, the, the matter of jobs is a lot different situation. It's a whole different world, really, now um, in terms of what a, what a college degree means. And um, and I do know education is a commodity and that basically it's bought and sold and that basically, you know, it's not a right but more of a privilege than, uh, and so, you know, going in debt for education is, is is very problematic because, you know, getting out of debt is very difficult. because uh, the system is not geared towards towards people accumulating wealth and especially if you're people of color. I'll I'll leave I'll Yes, Uh, we need to intensify our levels of organization 
and political education in order uh in order to to advance uh our people uh in particular and and humanity as a whole uh we need to form uh independent political organizations and uh and do and en- engage in independent study and research and 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 also uh college uh you know uh education is not for everybody and uh it is just one avenue in order to educate ourselves and increase our political organ- level of political organization but it's not the only way and it may not be the best way for everybody uh because uh college because of uh uh the changes and the decreases in financial aid uh it it may uh it, and also uh, with you know with that drying up college is uh, uh, again becoming uh you know uh uh you know a a, a tool for the elite only and uh in spite of her efforts to make it more accessible, it's becoming inaccessible and only two types of people are getting into colleges now. Those that can make money for uh for these institutions and that those that have the money that can pay their way. And uh, you know, uh uh you know, and the solution has to be uh, you know, uh, increasing our level of organization and uh, finding cre- uh, other alternatives to the uh, to uh, college in order to get the education we need in order to advance humanity. I think also, real quickly, Brother Africa. I think one of the things is that, uh, and to, to his point. I think one of the things, a lot of jobs that exist now are not going to be viable in the future, in the very near future. And kept with that in mind, STEM, STEM, uh, STEM-related disciplines become extremely important in the 21st century. So if you're talking about terms of economic base, you're talking about wealth and creation, it will have to be through STEM, science, technology, uh, engineering, or mathematics. It's got to be one of the four. So clearly, you know, uh, you know uh, the points that Brother Anthony raised are very, very legitimate points, and that's very true. Uh, there are other pursuits that you can you can pursue in terms of you know, providing a livelihood or you know uh, contributing to the community, but just in terms of when we talk about the struggle that we have to wage in, inside North America, uh, certainly one of the things we have to take in, take in consideration is that STEM is going to play a big part in terms of uh, you know ending our oppression. I think to a large extent, I think the institutions uh, that we create are also a big part of it. But uh, certainly uh, those kind of disciplines are going to contribute greatly in terms of moving our people forward much qu- much more quicker. So that's my view in terms of that. So I'll close with that. Okay, panelists, on that note, uh, we have come to the end of time for this particular program. We got each one of you to make your final thoughts for tonight. And we'll start out with Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and um, I just want to say, you know, it's it's a pleasure to share uh, uh, experiences with with people uh, um, and have this opportunity to do so. Uh, um, I I know that uh, it's a it's a rough world out here.
know, usually people go to school for things they, hopefully for what they love and what they have a passion for and what they, what they are motivated by. And, um, and, uh, and, and uh, I know I always kept a, kept a day job. I was always in the politics. The politics has always been my love, but I always kept a day job. Uh, I was a bookkeeper, a truck driver, all kinds of things. And, uh, and, um, and uh, I just know, you know, it's very difficult to get income in this society. It's just difficult, especially if you're a person of color, and if you're not willing to do just anything and everything you get. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to Brother Haki. Your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, well, I certainly hope, um, you know, that, you know, people beginning to, to, um, Understand the complexity of the struggles that we're confronted with. Uh, clearly, when we talk about being at war, I think at this point in history, I think if Africans understand they're at war by this point in history, you're probably not going to be able to convince them that you are. So clearly, we got our work cut out for us. And uh, you know, I really appreciate um, the brother coming on talk about the economic uh, uh, devastation on visiting the African community. Uh, clearly, as from a system systematic point of view. Uh, there is no, um, there's no concern uh, uh, whatsoever in terms of the longevity or the lives of African people, and it's important if they don't understand that, at the very least, that our people must understand that. And if we really believe in terms of important, in terms of you know our longevity, in terms of our our, our lives, we really believe they're important. Then we got to start acting like our lives are important. Otherwise, you know, we 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 carte blanche. We give the power to those individuals, those systems which are geared toward our destruction. So clearly, that's unacceptable. But having said that, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because it's only then that we begin to understand the nature of the struggle and what we must do in terms of overcoming the struggle. And I want to you have a good night. Good night to you, Brother Haki. And Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for today's program. Uh, no African can be afford not not to be in an organization that is working for people's liberation. And I would suggest the All African People's Revolutionary Party (GC), a Pan-Africanist organization, and uh, whose objective is uh, the uh, One Unified Socialist Africa, uh, and um, we're and uh we're seeking to to build that pan Africanist political party that Kwame Nkrumah called for and um you can find out more about the all the AAPRPGC by, by visiting our website www.a-aprp-gc.org and learn more about our work to build uh, an independent Pan-Africanist political party and our history and our struggle and also the work of our friends and allies to uh, throw off the yoke of imperialism in all of its forms. So please join an organization uh, to build uh, 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 Pan-Africanism 
and also and also to fight off uh to throw off the yoke of imperialism and all of its manifestations, including capitalism, racism, Zionism, etc. And thanks for having me. We'd like to thank you, Sue Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. In closing, again, we have talked about various problems that are confronting our community, our people, as well as humanity. The fundamental question that has been asked many times, and we are asking again, what are we going to do about solving these problems? Until next time. This has been Africa on the Move. We'll see you next week, same time, same station. And we got to remember, if they don't care about us, we must care about us. Again, we'd like to thank all our participants, Sister Nido, Brother Pat, for their contribution to today's program. And like always, we'd like to thank you, the listening audience and supporters, for allowing us to come to your home this evening where we can speak truth to power. Until next time, like always, we will strive to go forward, Apple, backwards, and Apple. So we leave you with some music of inspiration. This again has been Africa on the Moon. Your host, Brother Africa. Michael, eles não ligam pra gente.
Talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. Last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did its way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. 
seem like Nip had the same old story If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory Like from a harbor and 9-11 was the mystery Supremacy and go the extent to keep their history alive All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive who be on the internet trying to divide? Right. Use a hotel hustler. Uh. Trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence or forever be our own down. All I want to say is I'm giving it away. So ain't for sale and the devil is for fate. Argue with the silence but don't let it seal our fate. Right behind doors but don't ever show our face. Cause tomorrow I had Tomorrow come I had It be our own people do the trolling. We don't ignorance to do the scolding. Where we going? Cause your mom had Twitter. And Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance to do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you look for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyph is writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have hung my head. Landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I wanna get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I wanna live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm gonna be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I'm marched for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength to make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have hung my head and landed in 
God's word. 